And welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicki. And I am Janelle. And we're back again this week with some crime stories. It's literally negative eight degrees Fahrenheit in Illinois right now. It's so cold. <laughs> it's yeah, it's gross. I I literally I I went out this morning. I was surprised my car started, but I think this is the winter that we were waiting to hit us and i was waiting for it to hit more in january but here we are we're surviving like we do yeah i mean kind of i got frostbite by the time (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah janelle was telling me her frostbite story this morning (laughs) it's no big deal i hope you don't lose the tip of your finger (laughs) i mean i won't be able to flip anyone off so (laughs) i guess positive i mean i don't know Well, we have a great show for you today. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We are going to head over to the newsroom. Our news today comes from the New Hampshire Union Leader, where a woman named Lisa Landon was facing charges in Hillsborough County for drug possession and stalking. Rather than face the charges, Landon impersonated a Hillsborough County prosecutor and filed fake court documents (laughs) saying they had dropped the charges. Damn, that's some work. (laughs) I know. Now, here's where the real work comes in. Oh, geez. (laughs) They couldn't prove it. This actually happened in three different court cases. And it was only noticed when a state forensic examiner who was scheduled to do a competency evaluation noticed that the file said the charges had been dropped. Mm -hmm. So now... Landon has been charged with six counts of falsifying physical evidence, including claims she falsified a decision by retired Superior Court Judge Jillian Abramson to waive filing fees in a lawsuit that she had brought against Hillsborough County, (laughs) along with an order she allegedly filed on behalf of a relative to halt guardianship proceedings that had to do with her own child. Oh, okay. (laughs) So... This one I find really interesting because it's it's generally speaking, courts provide training for litigants who are representing themselves per se. So they aren't mm-hmm. getting an attorney. They're just representing themselves because you have to a lot of times go on and do e-filing, which is how she filed all of these court documents. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have to go on and do e-filing that the clerk looks at and files with the case and all that fun stuff. So... It's not, like, super hard (laughs) to, you know, make up some documents that you submit to the court online. (laughs) Guess not. (laughs) 
I guess she just was the first one to have the chutzpah to try, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) So we are going to move on to Netflix and Kill, where this week we are talking about American Murder, The Family Next Door. It was released in September of last year. American Murder looks at the story of the Watts family murders that happened in 2018. So after reporting that his wife had disappeared and investigators started looking, Chris Watts eventually confessed to killing his pregnant wife, Shanann, along with their two daughters, four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Celeste. Mm-hmm. In November 2018, Watts pled guilty to multiple counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to five life sentences without the possibility of parole, three served consecutively, and two served concurrently. So the documentary itself is kind of interesting because, due, like, due to the time period that it took place in, there's this extensive amount of surveillance camera footage and, like, the police body cams. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a lot of documentation on social media and emails and text oh, messages yeah. and she's phone records like a facebook mom yeah and so all of this stuff is included in the film and it's not they, they don't really have like experts on to talk about the case or the people involved in the case it's just a timeline of event that's put together with all of this footage and posting and messaging Mm -hmm. that creates the narrative of what happened right Mm -hmm. so it's kind of interesting in that way i kind of like that because it's a little less um i don't know i feel like sometimes when you have people in to talk about the story they definitely color it with their own view yeah Mm -hmm. you know yeah it definitely made it a lot shorter though (laughs) yes Yes, that's true. Because it's only like an hour and like 20 minutes, I think. Something like that. Right. And we're so used to like 7,000 part series. Right. It is kind of nice to watch just a regular documentary every once in a while. It's just like a movie (laughs) instead of like (laughs) an eight part series on, I don't know, whatever the hot topic is. (laughs) Night Stalker. Night Stalker was only four. I feel like four is the magic number really for a lot of these series. Most everything could be done in four episodes. I mean, really, most everything could be done in, like, one, if you are really good at crafting the story. Yeah. Yeah. True. Like this. So, like, to overshare. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Um, So, there were some extra details that came out later about this case, like, Watts had a mistress, uh, which was Mm -hmm. kind of a big plot point. Which I was like, oh, okay. But then again, not too surprised because, I mean, look at him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You just tell. (laughs) And, well, and there were some problems in the marriage. And there was a lot of, Mm -hmm. like, some of this stuff happening in the background. She had um, a health issue. What was her health issue? It wasn't MS. It was lupus? Lupus, yeah. Lupus, yeah. Yeah. So, and then of course, I remember this case happening. And the thing that got me really interesting was it almost happened right in the beginning. And there was this neighbor who had security camera footage that went from their driveway, but caught the Watts's driveway. And mm-hmm. the cops came and viewed this footage with the body cameras on. And Chris Watts was in the room watching the footage and then he leaves. So it's like an inception. Yes. Yeah. And so it's he like video leaves. And video and video. I mean, it it 
definitely makes it feel like it's happening in real time, at least. But I remember this coming out, him leaving and the neighbor being like, he's acting very weird. And all of the stuff. And they released that portion of the video and being, it just is like, you're almost uneasy about this person who actually committed the crime immediately being involved in the investigation and being around all it's just like oh that's really fucking weird that's mm-hmm. it was just really really weird yeah but the documentary was really interesting it's also super interesting because we always talk about cases where it's like the mother murdering the children and mm-hmm. it's a very different tone but then when a man like kills his entire family like it's an annihilator it's different it's like some sort of financial whatever reason Mm -hmm. and every time a woman does it it's very emotional well this case was all emotion and i feel like it was not like a typical family annihilator situation yeah and so i think that's why people were kind of like taken aback by it because it's like he killed them for literally no reason. Like he had Mm -hmm. no, he wasn't trying to hide anything. Like it was just, it was just very different. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't honestly, when they started investigating the family's disappearance, there were a lot of tip offs that was like, okay, something's not normal here because like her phone was still there. Her medication Mm -hmm. was still there. The kids blankets were gone, but her purse was still there, I think too. And so, I mean, there was like a lot of these, really kind of standard tip-offs that something was mm-hmm. amiss, you know. I, I, it's just one of these cases that I've always found kind of interesting because it wasn't very long after that they – when they started questioning Chris Watts that he actually confessed to the murders. Mm-hmm. It was only within a couple of days. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's just something. It's something. <laughs> it sure um, is something. <laughs> If you want to know more about this, you can check out American Murder, The Family Next Door on Netflix. I recommend it. I thought it was very interesting, but I would put in some trigger warnings because of the footage that's included. Some people don't really like Uh the real cop footage stuff. So there's some like 911 calls and stuff in there. So yeah, moving right along. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We will be discussing instances of sexual abuse and rape, murder, child death, and some really... That's just me. Me, all of the above. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, if you're not comfortable with that stuff, maybe skip this one. It gets a little intense. (laughs) Mine's not too intense. (laughs) Mine is going to... You know what? Happy endings is what I've been looking for lately. It's kind of happy endings. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Well, you'll see why mine is going to be a little messy. Yeah. Oh, probably not a good choice of words. (laughs) No, no. So one of the things that was recently in the news, of course, is actually the case that I'm going to be covering today because in January 2021... The United States executed Lisa Montgomery. She was the, at the time, the only woman on federal death row. And mm-hmm. this execution took place post the November elections after the former president had already lost. Mm-hmm. 
there is a lot of questions about this execution, but I don't know that a lot of people have really dug into this case as it should be, because it's definitely not as straightforward as it first seems, Mm -hmm. for sure. So I wanted to look a little deeper at this case. So Lisa Montgomery was born to Judy Shaughnessy and John Patterson in 1968. Now, Shaughnessy was 20 at the time of her birth, and she drank heavily during her pregnancy. Patterson was 25 and in the military at the time, but he also had another daughter from a previous relationship named Diane, who was four years old when Montgomery was born. And Diane has, especially right before and right after Montgomery's execution, has come out and done a lot of interviews about their childhood. So mm-hmm. she's she's definitely messy. in a window <laughs> into kind of, yeah, yeah. messy, to Messy's say the, the least. the theme of this episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's the only word that I can use to describe it because it's just like so disastrous. From the beginning – Both girls had an incredibly abusive childhood. Diane, like I said, she did a lot of interviews. She did an interview with the HuffPost in which she described what it was like growing up with Shaughnessy and Patterson. Quote, Shaughnessy would beat Diane with whatever was in her hand, be it a belt or a broom, she said. She liked to take her finger and poke it hard into her chest over and over in the same spot. Diane goes on to say, quote, she had the this ability to find what hurt you the most and use that against you. Shaughnessy knew that Diane was sensitive about abandonment due to her severed relationship with her birth mother. And so she would strip Diane naked and push her outside the front door, pretending she was kicked out. End quote. So not great. No, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg though. So for Montgomery, the abuse actually started indirectly when she was lying in bed at three years old next to her older half-sister while she was raped by a male babysitter. Eventually, Shaughnessy and Patterson did split, and Diane was taken out of the home by child services, who placed her in a foster home. And from her recollection, from that point on, she was in a very loving home. I mean, it was definitely like... She credits it the thing that saved her life, really. Mm-hmm. Montgomery, on the other hand, remained with her mother, who later married a man named Jack Kleiner when Montgomery was in kindergarten. Now, Kleiner, again, was an incredibly abusive and violent man, often beating his wife and children regularly. At the age of 11, Kleiner began raping Montgomery once or twice a week. After the family had moved into a trailer deep in the woods of Oklahoma, Kleiner actually built a special room on the side of their trailer specifically for the sexual abuse and rape to take place in. Oh, my God. In one instance, when Montgomery was resisting the abuse, Kleiner slammed her head against a concrete floor so hard that later MRI scans showed traumatic brain injury. It sounds like a perfect storm of making a murderer. Right, right. And honestly, when I was looking at this case, I really thought about the documentary we just talked about, Crazy Not Insane, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where a lot of serial killers or 
people, violent people that end up in the criminal justice system, a lot of that is a result of childhood trauma of some sort. That's just a fact, you know? So that definitely came to mind as I was doing the research into this. And I'm, I'm going to say straight up, that's about as deep into all of the like abuse and violence and, and rape and everything that I'm going to go. I, she, truly had a horrible childhood, but I don't really want to like dwell on a lot of those details today Mm -hmm. because it's just a, it's a lot. It was oftentimes by multiple men. It was oftentimes encouraged by her mother, but all of this adds up to what experts have compared to years and years of torture. A lot of them said they hadn't seen this kind of trauma since talking to Vietnam vets, like oh my God. that kind of, that level of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. When Montgomery was 15, Shaughnessy and Kleiner got divorced, at which point Shaughnessy admitted to the court that she had walked in on Kleiner while he was raping her daughter. And the court shamed her for never reporting it, but they also didn't report it themselves and Kleiner was never charged. Oh my God. What state is this again again? <laughs> this would have been in Oklahoma. Okay. Typical Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, does that <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I will say Montgomery did briefly see a therapist at the behest of Shaughnessy's lawyer, but it honestly didn't <laughs> well, at last. at least someone was very... looking out for the child. <laughs> right. Well, he tried, Hi. but yeah. the appointments didn't sort last. Of. Eventually, she stopped going. As she got older, the trauma that Montgomery had experienced in her childhood carried over into her adult life, kind of adding to this dysfunction. When she was 18, Montgomery married and had four kids in hopes to sort of break the cycle, escape the situation she was in. Unfortunately, it continued through that and her second marriage. She did later get a sterilization procedure, I think, after her second marriage. Again, this is from the HuffPost article, quote, her mental health declined rapidly after that. She got into multiple car accidents, struggled to keep a job, moved around constantly, drank heavily, engaged in sex work and neglected her children. She was often spaced out, appearing disconnected from reality. Mm -hmm. They also describe instances of delusional thinking. And she had told people at least five times after she had been sterilized that she was pregnant. Okay. Hysterical pregnancy? (laughs) We will talk about it. Oh, no. (laughs) There is a word for that, which I learned a lot of things on this for real. But there is definitely – we will definitely talk about that. Montgomery eventually met – Bobby Joe Stinnett through an online forum that catered to people who loved rat terriers and breeders of <laughs> okay. rat terriers okay. called Ratter Chatter. Ew. I'm just ew. <laughs> <laughs> Stinnett was at this point in time eight months pregnant. And after communicating over a series of weeks, the two sort of bonded after Montgomery revealed that she was also expecting. (laughs) In this forum, Montgomery had been using a pseudonym Darlene Fisher and continued to use this name in the emails that 
she and Stinnett had exchanged about buying one of Stinnett's puppies. Mm-hmm. They eventually reached an agreement, and on December 16th, 2004, Montgomery, who was 36 at the time, traveled from her home in Kansas to Stinnett's home in Missouri to pick up the puppy. Now, when she opened the door, Stinnett expected to see Darlene Fisher, but instead found Lisa Montgomery standing on her doorstep. And when she got into the house, Montgomery immediately overpowered Stinnett, strangling her with a rope and cutting the baby out of Stinnett's womb. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Heads up on that. (laughs) It's a little late, (laughs) but okay. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Montgomery then left with the baby, eventually cutting the umbilical cord in her car and cleaning the baby up with wipes. She then called her husband, who had believed that she had been pregnant for months, to say that she had gone into labor at a shopping center while she was Christmas shopping and had given birth to their child at a clinic. Okay. (laughs) When she got home, Montgomery and her husband began announcing the birth to their friends and family. Oh, hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah. Yes. He was not, like, he didn't think twice that she didn't have to go to the hospital? So he didn't think <laughs> about a lot of things, if like, I'm being even honest. If you give, even if you give birth somewhere, you still have to go to the hospital. They still take you to the hospital. Right. Someone calls an ambulance. <laughs> so he didn't question her being pregnant after the sterilization procedure. I think he had, mm-hmm. I had read that he had asked about it maybe once and she said, she basically said, nah, I'm pregnant. And he was like, all right, if you say so. But he also did not question the clinic thing. And they started making announcements to everybody when she got okay. back. Well, ignorance is bliss, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So in the meantime, about an hour after the attack, Stinnett's mother had actually gone to the house and discovered her daughter dead on the floor, immediately called police. When they began investigating, they found the emails that she had exchanged with a woman named Darlene Fisher. They very quickly discovered that this was a pseudonym, and they were able to use the computer's IP address to find Montgomery and arrested her the following day. Yeah, guys, don't use computers to do crimes. <laughs> You're never going to get I mean, <laughs> if you are, you have to... Well, you know what? No, I'm just going to say blanket, don't do that. Yeah, you're not Edward Snowden, so you can't. <laughs> right, even Edward Snowden is in hiding, Didn't so... Get away. Yeah, exactly. Computers yeah. will automatically make you guilty. <laughs> For real. In addition to using computer forensics, police uh, issued the first ever Amber Alert for an unborn child. They actually had some, like, like a couple of hurdles to get this out because they didn't have a description of the child because (laughs) at the time that it was kidnapped. (laughs) What? Yeah, at the time that it that. Oh, my God. Yeah, so... (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) After a few hurdles they were able to get this amber alert out and they do credit the amber alert a little bit for finding montgomery and the child so once they found montgomery who was cradling the child watching the tv with the amber alert like on the bottom of the tv at the time when they showed up to the house Mm -hmm. they removed the child who was alive 
and returned her to her biological father. I will say this right now. She survived. She, I believe, turned 16 last year and is living with her biological father. So just I just want to put that out there. Montgomery later confessed to the killing, although at trial she would plead not guilty. She was charged with the federal offense of kidnapping resulting in death with a potential sentence of life imprisonment or the death penalty. So her defense attorney was a man named Frederick Duchart. That's an unfortunate name. He's an interesting dude in his own right. Because he is the single American attorney who has had more clients sentenced to death in federal court than any other defense attorney in the United States. Okay, well, maybe not hire that person or be like, yeah, I need someone new. <laughs> as, a, I, as a defense attorney, he was assigned to the case. So Yeah, I'd be like, I need a more competent lawyer, please. <laughs> yeah, he's got a terrible, terrible tracker. I actually would love to do another attorney episode and look into this guy because he is also like he's another one that I'm like the hutzpah this guy because <laughs> in the appeal for this case, he wrote this like hundred page brief basically being like, I wasn't a bad lawyer. <laughs> And these claims are ridiculous. And yeah, yeah. He seems like a very interesting fellow. (laughs) So as I said, he was assigned to the case in April of 2006. And he really didn't devote the necessary time to the case that he needed to. He had two working theories of the case as it went to trial. First, that it was actually Montgomery's brother who had given the child to her. But that was like pretty quickly stamped out because he had an alibi that came to light like shortly before trial. The other was that while they admit that Montgomery was the killer, that she had also been suffering something called pseudocysis or phantom pregnancy uh, and was not guilty by reason of insanity. So this is, we're going to come back to your hysteria. What did you call it? Hysteric pregnancy? Hysterical pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So according to the Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, pseudocysis is a false belief of being pregnant that is associated with objective signs of pregnancy, which may include abdominal enlargement, reduced menstrual flow, amenorrhea, subjective sensation of fetal movement, nausea, breast engorgement, and secretions and labor pains at the expected date of delivery. Ew. <laughs> so I don't think this is a very common thing. No. I also wonder when the last time they actually like looked at that specific definition to be like is this a thing that really happens because they occasionally go over I this mean, stuff right i have heard it happen. yeah they should i think they're supposed to review things annually or semi-annually for the manual but i have okay, heard this happening okay. in instances of women who have had traumatic miscarriages or women okay. who have lost their child really really young you know, like an infant okay. uh, death. So I've heard this happening before, but in this case, it it seems more like an alibi and not mm-hmm. necessarily something that actually happened. <laughs> right. Well, according to the court, this theory had no scientific basis and was not allowed to be included when the case went to trial. Mm-hmm. So basically, 
The two working theories he had when they went to trial were tossed out the window. (laughs) And because he's such a competent lawyer, it was, you know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Montgomery was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to death. Upon investigation by her appeals team, it was discovered that Montgomery had suffered extensive psychological, physical, and sexual abuse as a child that left her with florid psychosis, which is the acute phase of schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. bipolar disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder, along with permanent brain damage from getting her head bashed on the cement. Mm Mm-hmm. Although she attempted appealing on every level she could, the courts affirmed Montgomery's death sentence. So since 2008, Montgomery has been sitting on the federal death death row awaiting her executions through various stays and appeals. That is, until a certain president came to power. (laughs) Oh, goody. He who shall remain unnamed. (laughs) Oh my god, banished from the land. Although... No federal executions had taken place since George W. Bush's administration in 2003. Trump began the string of 13 executions in July of 2020, including five after he lost the election in November, one of which was the only woman on federal death row, Lisa Montgomery. She was the first federal execution of a woman in about 70 years, and I think it's safe to say one of the more controversial. Mm -hmm. Her execution took place on January 13th, 2021 in Terre Haute, Indiana, where she was pronounced dead at 1.31 a.m. Those directly impacted by her crime have absolutely held that she deserves to die for her crimes. Mm -hmm. But when you look at at what mental health and criminal justice reform advocates are saying. They're saying due to her dissociative state at the time of the murder, as well as her permanent brain damage and inability to understand basically that she is dying for the crimes that she committed, right? Like that's mm-hmm. one of the like requirements they have for somebody to be mentally competent to stand for death row, right? Yeah. And there's, definitely been a lot of questionable decisions made, I would say, on the understanding of some people's, like, just just the capacity to understand that some people have mm-hmm. in recent years. It's akin to a child not understanding what death is, because they are in that similar mental state. Like, they, most of these people who have, you know, these, um, I don't remember the term, but you know, like, deficiencies have the Mm -hmm. mental capacity of like an eight-year-old so yeah they're not going to understand what it what's going on or that they're going to be put to death or even what death in that essence means right like the finality of what is taking place Mm -hmm. and i am by no means saying that people in a similar position should not pay for their crimes like that's not what i'm saying here at all but i do have a real big issue with putting these types of people on death row who really it's not even that they don't want to understand or that they're just ignoring it it's they literally do not have the capacity to figure out what is happening yeah they cannot comprehend it whatsoever how can we in good conscience put these people to death like i i just can't i cannot so i've definitely i've been vocal on my 
opposition to the death penalty for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely, definitely one of them. Yeah, I mean, I struggle with it not because I'm like, oh, people shouldn't be killed because you, you know how nihilistic mm-hmm. I am. Um, but <laughs> right. my my <laughs> my legal my legal issue is I really don't truly believe that you can 100 percent without a doubt know if somebody did something wrong mm-hmm. because every like DNA can be tampered with or done incorrectly. Camera footage can be messed with. Like, there, juries can be tampered with. There's so many factors mm-hmm. that I really, truly don't believe that you can 100%, without a doubt, know for sure if somebody has committed a crime. Eyewitnesses aren't reliable. Like, there's so many things that can be, you know, twisted, misinterpreted, just outright not working. So... For me, because of that, that's why a death penalty shouldn't be in play. Because as we'll see with my case, even people on death row, like there is an exceptional amount of innocent people on death row. So mm-hmm. we're we're putting people on death row that are innocent. So like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, and that's something that actually for me is also the huge piece of it. Like, that's the main reason is because Mm -hmm. when you have human beings at all involved in any piece of the system, and you do in this, in, in this case, in criminal justice, it's run by human beings. We inherently make mistakes. We are not perfect. And until you can come out with an absolutely perfect system that can be right 100% of the time, then I will not be comfortable with something like the death penalty. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, but... (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. So basically, we could never serve on a jury. Because (laughs) I would serve on a jury, but I couldn't serve on a death penalty qualified one. (laughs) I think, honestly, if we had jury jury, but I've never been called. If we had jury duty, they would not take us. Maybe like they know too much. It's because we know too much. Yeah. (laughs) We know too much. We know way too much. (laughs) They're like, they are knowledgeable. They have a podcast. They will talk about it on the podcast. (laughs) I know. I know. If you ever want to get out of jury duty, just say, I have a true crime podcast or a law podcast. They'll be like, bye. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, pretty soon I'll be able to be like, I have a true crime podcast and I'm a paralegal. <laughs> like, so sorry. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, there was my, this doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I get up on my soapbox and that was one of those times, first of all. See, we need to get ourselves tiny soapboxes so that we can pull it out when we're ready I to know. have our so- soapbox moment. <laughs> I, I know. Somebody it get on that. for me very often. <laughs> But this is one of these things that I do feel really passionate about. We've talked about on the show Mm -hmm. before, like, just it's like one of these, like, so obvious things. It's just Mm -hmm. like a logic thing, you know? Anyway, I wanted to cover this case because one, because of the the amount that it's been in the news. And I really don't think people have really been digging into this case. And it is a perfect example Mm -hmm. of something that will make you think. I wanted you guys to think today because... Is this right? Is this a right thing? I'm not trying to argue that she is innocent or guilty. Like, I, she is 100% guilty. But, like, mm-hmm. I would just be curious to know what you guys think mm-hmm. about all of this. 
really, because it's definitely a question I think people need to consider. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's, and, that's uh, the end. They'll be thinking even more after my case. So. <laughs> oh, great. So when Vicky was like, we're going to talk about women on death row. I was like, cool. How can I make this positive? Because my kick lately is let's try to find things with happy endings. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad one of us is doing that. Right? I need some light fluff in my life. It's not me. Yeah. So I'm like, think about things, damn it. <laughs> exactly. I've been thinking about things way too much. Working in education, being in grad school, and working at a library nonprofit work, like, I am constantly being inundated with having to think about things. So. I need yeah, a moment yeah. not to. So I decided to look up a case where I wanted to see how many women on death row have been exonerated. Okay. And the answer is one. Uh, one? <laughs> one woman. One whole woman. One? <laughs> one. That's it. That, mm-hmm. I am actually kind of surprised. Did you say on federal death row or on um, everything? I... Bo- I <sighs> It didn't specify, but I think it was federal because it went okay. all the way to like the Mississippi Supreme Court. So, <laughs> okay. Anywho, so. so this is the case of Sabrina Butler. So, Sabrina Butler was a young woman from Mississippi, and she came, as we'll hear from many a stories, from a broken home with a mother who also had a drinking problem. <laughs> so, the lots of parallels already. Yeah. They were very, very poor. And by age 15, Sabrina was married and pregnant with her first son, Danny. Dang. By 17, she had had her second child, Walter, and was filing for divorce from her husband. Okay. Yikes. Yeah. I was like, ugh, could you even imagine being married as a teenager? Ew. (laughs) That is too much. All the emotions. I know. So on April 12th, 1989, Sabrina Butler had returned home from jogging. She went into the kitchen and retrieved a bottle from the kitchen and went into her son Walter's room to feed him. Upon entering, she noticed that he was not breathing. She attempted to give him CPR and had noticed that he was making some kind of gurgling noises. So she rushed Walter to the hospital where nine hours later, the infant would die. Upon examination, the doctors noted that the child had slight bruising on his ribcage, and so the police were called. That very day, Sabrina Butler was arrested for murder and child abuse in the death of her son, Walter. Okay. So, yeah, just jumping straight up to the conclusions, which in the, I've covered a lot of child abuse cases, which I know I'm not comfortable saying that out loud, um, but... I have never seen a, a adult get arrested so quickly for child abuse. Probably because she was black. But, Weird how that works out, but, right? You know. Weird. Weird how that works we'll talk out. About that. Huh. Huh. So uh Sabrina was arrested and thrown into an interrogation immediately. And during that interrogation, detectives attempted to get her to confess to killing her child. This is a quote from a newspaper article. I was alone with no lawyer or parent with me. I told him I tried to save my baby and he wrote down what I said and then threw it in the garbage. He yelled at me for three hours. No matter what I said, he screamed over and over that I had killed my baby. I was terrified. 
I was put in jail and not allowed to attend Walter's funeral. So right off the bat, that's fucked up. That's really coming fucked at up. her with the very typical interrogation techniques where they just scream in your face, good cop, bad cop. So Ugh. the trial began in March of 1990. You'll notice that that's a two year gap. <laughs> so the defense called one person to testify. That's it. The prosecution called 22 people to testify. The prosecution also claimed that according to the coroner's report, the baby had numerous internal injuries and peritonitis, which is an internal infection that actually takes a few hours to set in. So they, okay. they concluded, this is where it gets real fucking confusing. They concluded that the baby had been suffocated and that the injuries were from failed attempts to give CPR. So you can't get peritonitis from suffocation, just so you know. okay so i am like so here's i'm sorry you could probably tell i've been staring like yeah i've seen the what the fuck is going on because (laughs) i know because i'm like even if it so i have so many questions like my brain is not yep computing that that was exactly my face as i was reading this i'm like what i'm just gonna go along for the ride i think for a little bit and see where this goes yeah 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 okay so um they said that a lot of the injuries and the bruising was from failed attempts at cpr now according to the medical examiner she had given cpr in the traditional way which means that it was for adults when you give cpr for children it's much much different there's a whole lot of patent on the back and and tiny little mouth breaths and less compressions and you're actually supposed to use your fingers not your hands so (laughs) right because babies are like jelly exactly which is why the bruising was so quick and easy because if you're giving cpr as you would for an adult you actually will break their rib cage and yeah hurt them severely so yeah yeah they also stated that butler contradicted herself several times in her i'm going to put quotes on interview um more like a shouting match these accounts included a fictitious babysitter as well as versions in which she went jogging by herself and then she went jogging with the baby in the baby stroller uh the statement she actually signed said that she had punched the baby in the stomach so not even suffocation can i ask (laughs) a question Sure. <laughs> was there somebody at home with the baby while she went jogging? That's the question of the century. Okay. So according to, so all of the different stories was that she, the baby was home with a babysitter. The baby was home by itself. The baby was with her when she was jogging. What really happened was, um, the person downstairs was watching the baby while she went running and they had put the baby to sleep and then they went back downstairs as she was coming home. So the baby was alone for a very, very very short time. It's no different than if you were to leave your child in their bedroom and have a baby monitor and you are in a different room. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. But because the uh, detectives were kind of yelling at her, her story changed a thousand times. So the story that I initially had told you was what was given in the report, but not what she said is the truth. According to the defense, the police coerced her into a confession. So we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit. 
it wasn't as much a coercion as they wrote it up for her and she signed it. So she mm. really didn't know what was in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how old was she at this time? She was 17. Okay. Yikes. All right. Now, she had stated that her her parents weren't there and they weren't called, but she was actually getting divorced from her husband, so they would have never called her parents anyway. Because at that point, you're an adult, you've been married, you had a husband, they're not going to call your parents even if you're 17. Mm-hmm. So she said, um, I was a teenager who less than 24 hours before had lost my precious baby boy. Ambitious men questioned, demoralized, and intimidated me. In that state of mind, I signed the lies they wrote on a piece of paper. I signed my name in tiny letters in the margin to show some form of resistance to the power they had over me. Now, they also stated that the injuries and bruises to the chest were, in fact, from bad CPR. But the the baby actually had stopped breathing due to health defects, not abuse. So the baby was actually pretty much dead before she started giving it CPR. They'll later find out that he had had kidney and heart issues that were not known yet. Okay. Now, the official statement we had talked about was, was false. And the bigger issue was that the defense did not call Butler to take the stand. So she never testified. Uh-oh. Now, what I'm going to say now is what actually happened according to her. Okay. Walter was playing with his toys in the living room before 10 p.m. I fed him some milk. I washed him off around 10 p.m. and I put him to bed. I took a shower. I ate and then I put on my jogging pants and got Walter wrapped up and I put him in the stroller and went outside to jog. I went up 27th Street to the street that goes to 26th and down 26th for less than a block. I jogged back home, pushing him in the stroller. I then went back inside and put Walter to bed. I went into my room and lay down on the floor because of my back. I got up around 1130 to use the bathroom and check on Walter. Um, at some point, her her neighbor had come upstairs, but I can't remember if it was while she was taking a shower or what. There's some conflicting information in some of the articles that I read that it was before okay. she got into the shower, and some yeah. that said it was after. So there was a period of time where she wasn't she didn't see her child at all. The neighbor went in, checked on him, checked on her, and then left. Okay. When I went into his room, he was lying on his stomach, and I moved the cover and put a bottle in his mouth, and I saw that he wasn't breathing. I started to press on his stomach and blow into his mouth, trying to get him to breathe. I ran out of my apartment to Brenda Jackson's apartment, which was the person who had come in earlier, and asked her to take me to the hospital, but she said her kids were in bed and that she couldn't take me. I knocked on another apartment door, but no one answered. Then a girl came out of her apartment, and I told her that my baby wasn't breathing, and she grabbed him and took him into Erica's apartment and laid him on the floor. She was pushing on his chest and blowing in his mouth, and she got some people to take us to the hospital. We went to CHI, where Dr. Woodard in the emergency room saw Walter. I talked to a nurse, and she filled me. She had me fill out some papers. Dr. Adams came out and told me that there wasn't anything else they could do, and Walter, Walter fell out of his stroller sometime around the first of last week and fell over onto the carpet, causing some abrasions on his face. Other than that, there were no injuries that I was aware of. So she was saying that he had had some cuts from something on his face from earlier in the week. Yeah. So they had also cited that as part of an abuse. And then they cited that the bruising on his chest was abused. But again, that was from CPR. Yeah. Okay. 
The jury found Sabrina Butler guilty of capital murder, and she was sentenced to death. Now, Butler went to death row and immediately started writing to anyone and everyone she could to kind of profess her innocence and see if she could get anyone interested in her case. Now, the Supreme Court reversed the conviction on August 26, 1992, and ordered a retrial. She spent two years and nine months on death row and then waited three more years in the county jail for her second trial. Oh, my God. Speedy trial, huh? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The second trial was granted, and they were even given a change of venue. In the second trial, the medical examiner changed his original opinion, stating that the child died of an internal kidney malady. Additionally, a neighbor testified that the bruises occurred during an unsuccessful attempt to administer CPR. The Mississippi Supreme Court also ruled that the prosecutor's comments to the jury in their closing arguments, which they commented on Butler's lack of testimony, were egregious. So, <sighs> oh my <laughs> you can't God, be it's all true. Slandery in your closing arguments. <laughs> no, because during trial, the person who is being accused does not have to testify in their defense. So, exactly. and it's not—it's <laughs> not an admission of guilt. They don't have to say anything. So, no. Yep. So the jury deliberated briefly before acquitting Butler on December 17th, 1995. But the story does not stop there. Butler sued for wrongful conviction and was granted $329,000 in state compensation. And this was kind of in an, uh, something that happened in a court case against Mississippi. So uh, like a dozen other people were granted uh, compensation from the state for um, wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. So many people applied, uh, in fact, that they had to pass a law in 2009 about compensation plans for wrongfully convicted people in the state of Mississippi. Good. So. Good. (laughs) Way to go, Mississippi. (laughs) According to this doctor, many death row exonerations are not due to DNA uh, DNA evidence, but rather um, reassessment of mishandled trials and wrongful assumptions made by the prosecution. So. This is very specifically true in the in the state of Mississippi. That basically means that there's a lot of false confessions. There's a lot of issues with juries. There's a lot of prosecutors just shouting whatever they feel and closing arguments mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, according to sociology professor Sandra Westerfeldt, um, many exonerees live in an empty space of society after gaining freedom, not qualified to receive benefits available to parolees, but still suffering the social schism against former convicts. Many people exonerated of crimes have issues finding work, housing, and going to school. Since 1973, 144 people have been exonerated and freed from death row. And this is a U.S. statistic from 2014. Mm -hmm. A study published by the National Academy of Sciences found that more than 4% or one in every 25 people on death sentences in the U.S. are imposed on people who are innocent. I'll just stop right there. One in yep. 25 people on death row are innocent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're, it's, it's even more crazy when you're talking about just people getting convicted of uh-huh. crimes that they are innocent of. It's like one in 10. It just generally speaking, yeah. it's insane. Butler was lucky enough to get her GED while she was incarcerated. But when she was released, she couldn't find work. Not only that, but she couldn't get her record expunged. It wasn't until 2015, 10 years later, that it was finally expunged. 
Now, Butler works for the Witness of Innocence Project and lives in Tennessee with her husband and three kids. Uh, Witness to Innocence is an organization that is made up of death row exonerees, and Sabrina Butler is the only woman, of course, to be exonerated on death row, so she's the only woman working at the organization. Mm -hmm. Butler described her work with the project as, we speak all over about the justice system and its approach to who gets the death penalty and who doesn't. It is racially motivated on every level and needs to be fixed. I have been doing advocacy work since I got out in 1985. I know that if I don't speak out and people like me, then when will it ever change? Too many innocent people have been tortured by this unjust system. It must change. And one way to get rid of the death penalty and to put new laws in place and hold people accountable for their actions who intentionally put people in prison unjustly. I wanted to play a clip um, from the Innocence Project's website. It's just a two-minute clip that kind of, she talks briefly about her case, but then she talks about the work that she's done after she was released. Um, So I'll start that. I am Sabrina Butler. I served six and a half years on Mississippi's death row for a crime I did not commit. In 1989, I was convicted of killing my son. When I made it to death row, I was 19 years old. They put me in a six by nine cell, no bigger than your bathroom. It's like being buried on the ground with the lid on top of you and you can't breathe. That's what death row is like. When I first got to death row, I had lost hope. I was angry with God. I gave up for like three years. Why did he let that happen to me when I was only trying to save my son? When we had the retrial, they found out that my son had heart problems, kidney problems, and chronic bowel syndrome. It was nothing that I did to cause his death. Even though I was exonerated, my son's death certificate still says he was he was murdered. You know, I never got to grieve him. That was one of the hardest parts for me about death row. When I was exonerated, that made me the first woman in the United States to be exonerated from death row. Unless you go through it yourself, you just don't know what it does to a human being to take their freedoms away and accuse them of something that they didn't do. It's torture. That's pretty much what it is. You got innocent people, drove us on death row and said, okay, we're going to kill you. And then you find out, oh, my bad, we made a mistake. When you look for jobs, the door is closing your face because it's still on your record. Are you really exonerated? No, you're not exonerated. can you heal? You can't. And I think I struggle with that. I mean, I don't think that's going to go away. So that was her little, uh, on the website, they have everyone who works there, they have a little video that kind of talks about their case and how they felt and why they decided to kind of be a part of this. Okay. So if you want to um, donate or see how you can help, you can visit witness uh, to innocence.org. And they have some advocacy and some other things that you can do that don't or that are not monetary donations, or you can um, give a monetary donation. They do have local chapters in other states, and they work on the state level and federal level to help people who have been exonerated from death row, also to help kind of people get money or new lawyers to be retried and to prove their innocence so that they can get off of death row. Um, So yeah, that is the case of Sabrina Butler. And how fucked are yeah <laughs> oh my God, no kidding is. no kidding 
So we've given you guys a lot to think about, I think, on this episode. <laughs> but if you need to give your brain a break from all that thinking, why don't you check out this podcast? Ever wish you had sisters? Come be our four sisters. We bitch. I mean, discuss childhood, adulthood, sisterhood, all the hoods of life, and the painfully hilarious moments that make them. Our way of coping is a lot more fun than therapy. We, we promise. promise. Wait, you guys, we didn't even say the name of the podcast. Listen to Damn Girl on iTunes. All right, Janelle, that has been our episode. Sure has. It's a fun, fun journey, I guess. <laughs> yeah. If you like this episode <laughs> and you want to hear more like this, you can go to badtastepodcast.com where we have all of our episodes posted along with links to our donate page and our merch page it's all there you can just on our page page (laughs) a few clicks away Mm -hmm. we have a live stream coming up i'm trying to think when this is coming out and when the live stream is so this is before the live stream okay so (laughs) what date did you decide march 7th at 7 p.m on our youtube channel on our youtube channel anniversary live stream episode (laughs) yeah we haven't done a corn stream in a long time janelle and i are both still remotely recording yes so we want to do it because we haven't in a while we stopped because there was definitely like a confluence of things happening at and yeah the stars were not Uh, aligned for that moment and grad school and grad school (laughs) yeah yeah so that'll be fun you can join us. You yeah. can see us. We'll be, I'm sure, playing some games and talking about some oh, crime will. stuff. <laughs> um, Janelle's going to come with some surprises for me. Inevitably, yes. it always happens. Per usual. <laughs> yeah. You said games. I can't wait to play my game. <laughs> yes. I'm going to have, maybe I'll pull out Florida Man. We did Florida Man for a while. Yeah. Um, so I'll probably pull that good. out. Anyway, you can mm-hmm. join us. What was the date again? March 7th, which is a Friday, 7 p.m. from your living room. Are you sure it's the 7th? Let me pull up my calendar. Nope, it's March 12th. Is it 12th? (laughs) It's March 12th. Guys, March 12th. (laughs) Today is the 7th. Yes, yes. March March 12th 12th on our YouTube page. (laughs) March 12th, yes. The second Friday of March. (laughs) Tiff Tiff can bleep it out if she wants, just to not confuse people. You, yeah, you can cut Tiff us and cut say in the correct date. March twelfth. Twelfth. <laughs> <12th. laughs> oh March 12th. god. All right. I think that's our cue to go. We we Yes. <laughs> we gotta be <laughs> we done need with to this. leave. Goodbye. <laughs> so on that note, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks, I guess. Probably. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> adios. Sayonara. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people. Some form or another.